Amen. I would invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, and we'll also be in Genesis 17, 1 through 8. I know what you're thinking. Brother Matt, we just got through with Abraham. Why are we going back? Well, we're going to look at a little bit different of an angle on the Abrahamic story today as we're going to begin this three-part series on modern Israel, How Should We Think? I want you to be a part of this next three-part series because there are many things happening in the world today. And certainly we need to be in prayer that God would bring peace and provide safety to the innocent people in that region of the world. And it's just been heartbreaking. I know your heart has broken as my heart has broken to see all of the horrible things which took place on October the 7th that were perpetrated against the Jewish people. And then also just... War is tragic, and now that area of the world is in a state of war. And so we should be a prayerful people. We should be a prayerful people that the Prince of Peace would rule and reign, and he would guide the steps going forward. But I want you to work with me these next three weeks on how Christians should think about the modern state of Israel. Now, before I get going, um, I understand that not everybody, not all Christians think the same on this issue. There are many people that love Jesus, love his church, love the word of God that are going to think differently when it comes to the question of modern Israel. I understand that. So, you may, at the end of this study that we're going through these next three weeks, say, Pastor Matt, you know what? I don't think I agree with you. I think I am a little bit on the other side of this issue or somewhere in the middle. But I want you to know that that's okay. That's okay. Christians have been disagreeing since the book of the Acts, which is the beginning of the church whether it be on disagreeing who was going on a mission trip, that would be Paul and Barnabas, or whether it be disagreeing with how much um, tradition, Jewish tradition was going to be found in the Gentile church, there have been an abundance of opinions amongst faithful believers. And I want you to know that that is okay. There are people that come to this church every week our church and you don't agree with me on everything i'm not trying to change your mind on those issues those issues that we disagree on are tertiary in this sense they're not primary issues there are some things that in order to like be a christian you kind of got to agree on like such that there is a god and that jesus is god and he came as a man gave him life for you and for me, and that dying on the cross, he was buried and he rose again and he promises one day to come again and that he is the only way to God. Look, listen, those are things that if you don't embrace those kinds of things, then it's hard for us to place the label of Christian on you because Christian means believing the big stuff, the big stuff that the primary things and to step away from those primary things would put you into what we would call 
major theological error. In fact, moving outside the boundaries of orthodoxy. But when it comes to tertiary issues, when it comes to these other issues, it is okay for us to disagree. So these next three weeks, I'm going to do a series. This is going to be on modern Israel. Now, once we get done with that, I'm going to do a three-part series after that on alcohol. I'm going to hit all the controversial things before Christmas. All right, so you do not want to miss that. And you may be surprised where this Baptist preacher lands on that issue. But I would encourage you to come and be a part of both things not so you can hear my convictions, no, rather so that we can all be better students of the Word of God. I want, at this point in my life, as a younger pastor, I just, I felt like I just had a word and I had to be heard. Well, listen, now I've reached a place in my life that sometimes I wonder about my views on tertiary matters. I'm more persuaded than ever on the primary things, but as I get older and I've listened to other people older and wiser than me and may hold different views than me, I realize I'm probably wrong on some things. I have full expectation of one day when I stand before the Lord to get my theology adjusted significantly hopefully not on anything primary but I fully expect I don't think that when I walk into heaven and this goes for you too that I don't think when any of us walk into heaven that the saints are just going to be clapping and saying oh thank God you're here finally somebody can explain to us the book of Revelation oh my goodness brother Matt I don't think like the prophet Jeremiah is going to be a brother man. Will you sign my Bible? Like it's, it's not going to happen that way. We're all going to get adjusted when we stand before the Lord. And frankly, I think when we see Jesus in the light of his glory and grace, we won't care about a lot of that stuff. We'll just be glad that we're there. And we'll be glad that everybody else is there. We'll be glad that everybody else is there too. So, but for today, in the next three weeks, and then we'll go on to the next series after that, I want us to talk about this question. So here's how we're going to break it down. The first week we're going to look at the Israel of the Bible, how Israel became a nation, and where we get this idea that there is a nation of Israel. A promised land, so to speak. Next week, we're going to talk specifically about the Israel of today. So this week, Israel of the Bible. Next week, Israel of today, the modern state. And the third week, the Israel of tomorrow. What does the Bible say about Israel in the future? So buckle up, be a part, bring your Bible, be ready, and be prayerful for the nation of Israel at this time. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he had departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. 
When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land at the place of Shechem to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So, the first place that we want to look here today is in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. Here's our main statement, is that we call it the promised land for a reason. We call it the promised land for a reason. Just out of curiosity, how many of you here in this room have been to the promised land? I'm not talking about Starkville or Oxford. I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. How many of y'all have been to the promised land? Wonderful. I had the privilege of going to the promised land back in 2019 with Pastor Langerfeld. It was wonderful. So today, I want to talk with you about why we call it the promised land. First is this. God promised the land to Abraham and promised to make him a nation. God promised the land to Abraham and God also promised to make him a nation. This is the first place that this commitment by God is made is in Genesis chapter 12. The promise of the land and the promise of a nation are joined together from Genesis 12 forward. I want you to note how that it is a twofold promise. It's not just a land inheritance, it's a nation for the land. Look in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 2, God speaking again to Abraham, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Notice there, the commitment is to make Abraham a nation. Nation. But if you look back in the first verse of Genesis chapter 12, notice what it says. It says, and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. You may want to also jot in your notes a significant verse in Genesis 12. Again, look again in verse number 7. It said, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I will give this land. So what is taking place in Genesis chapter 12? In Genesis chapter 12, God is taking Abraham. He is taking him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And he is making him into a great nation. And he is going to give Abraham and his offspring the land. So God made the land in Genesis 1. We know this, that on the third day God made dry land. And that on the sixth day that God made human beings and he gave the human beings the land to rule with all of its creatures. So God made the land in general, all land in Genesis 1, and he gave it to humans to rule and fill. So here is the way ancient Jews thought about Abraham. If you read some of the ancient Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, ancient Jews thought of Abraham as the new Adam, as the new Adam. Of course, Jesus is talked about as the new Adam ultimately, but ancient Jews and still Orthodox Jews to this day thought of Abraham as the new Adam. 
Abraham would be the new Adam, a new humanity to live in a place where God would dwell with them. So let's think about like we're, we're painting a theological picture here because one of the things is that when we read the Bible, we tend to read it literally, and that's not entirely bad to read things literally, but sometimes things are written to say something more than just recounting factual history. They are written in a way to paint a theological picture of what we are to think. For instance, when God made the land, on the sixth day he made Adam and Eve, and then when you get to Genesis chapter 2, what do we learn? That God plants a garden. God plants a garden on the land of which he is made. And then after planting a garden on the land of which he is made, he makes man out of the dust of the ground in chapter 2, and he places him in the garden, the beautiful place where God is. And then after placing man in the garden, man names all the animals, and then God puts man to sleep inside the beautiful place, inside the garden, and then God makes woman in the beautiful garden. Where God made man in the wilderness, God made woman in the beautiful garden. That's why women are prettier than men, right? But anyway, God takes humanity... And then he has humanity to rule and serve in the garden. In fact, we're going to see here in a minute, the language used in Eden is that Adam and Eve would serve as priests in the garden of Eden. I want you, I want you to think about this because we don't often think about this. If we were ancient Jewish people, we would think about this, but we don't. If we read Hebrew, we would realize in Genesis chapter 2, the verbs that are used to describe the tending and the caring of the garden are the same exact verbs that are used to describe the priestly care of the Levites and the high priest later in the tabernacle and the temple. What was the Garden of Eden, right? Well, the Garden of Eden was this hot spot on the earth. This place where heaven met earth, so to speak, because God walked and talked with man in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was this hot spot on the earth where God's glory was and man could be in his presence there in the Garden of Eden. In later times in the Bible, those hot spots are just called temples. Where the deity dwells and humanity can go inside the temple and encounter the deity. So the Garden of Eden is the first temple. If we were thinking like Jews, it is the first temple that is mentioned in the text of Scripture. And Adam and Eve would be serving as the first priests serving in the temple that God had built here on the earth all right this is the way they would think about it ancient jewish people so abraham is to be this new adam why because adam and eve were expelled out of the holy place of eden and pushed into the wilderness and they could no longer go into the presence of where god was because now there were cherubim by the way you know this story, at the end of Genesis chapter 3, God placed a flaming sword turning every which way and two cherubim, we say two because cherubim is just plural, 
cherub is singular, so cherubim, I guess it could have been like five, six, seven, eight, who knows, but cherubim are not angels, according to the Old Testament, they are creatures, they are creatures, you can read about them in uh, Ezekiel and Revelation, they've got like a face of an ox and a lion and an eagle and all kinds, they're, they're creaturely, and God places these two divine creatures to guard the entrance to the Garden of Eden, and now mankind is no longer able to access the holy place of Eden until the tabernacle. Why? Because the tabernacle contained a place called the Holy of Holies. And inside the Holy of Holies, there was a place called the Ark of the Covenant. And then on top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. And then on top of the mercy seat sat two, do you remember? Cherubim facing one another. And then that place where God would speak from the over the mercy seat, and God would speak to the high priest once a year, would be the place that allowed humanity to go to that spot on the earth where God would dwell with humans. And the temple and the tabernacle in the Old Testament was to be the new Eden, so to speak, where the priest would go in and visit with God one time a year on the Day of Atonement. This is, this is how to think about this in a Jewish fashion. That when God made the land, he placed the temple called Eden, so to speak, on the land. And Abram, not Abram, but Adam served as the priest. That all fell to the wayside. Now, Jews believe and understand that when God was calling Abram out and Abraham out, he is starting over. He is starting over with a new kind of Adam to build a new kind of Eden, to place a new place where people will come and dwell and live with him. And that's what the tabernacle and the temple are all about. Now, you say, I've never really thought about it that way. That's because we're not Jewish people. We, I'm, I'm, listen, I was born in East Tennessee. Like, I, I had to be told this stuff. I had to be taught this stuff. We just don't think Jewishly. We think like 21st century and 20th century Americans. So, but ancient Jews would have understood that Abram is the new Adam, this new kind of humanity to be building this new land, this new holy place where people would dwell with God. So, God promised the land to Abraham and promised to make him a nation. Principle number two, let's keep going. God promised the land to Abraham's offspring. God promised the land to Abraham's offspring. In fact, I think I may want to go ahead. Uh, no, I'm going to read that in just a second. Um, you know Abraham had several sons, but only one son was the son of promise. We've already talked about that a few weeks ago. He had Ishmael, and then he had some other sons as well. But there's only one son that came through Sarai, or Sarah, and that was the son of promise. And Isaac was his name. And Isaac is going to receive the same promise of the land that his dad did. So the promise of the land and nation extended to Isaac. I want you to see this. Genesis chapter 26, verses 3 through 4. It'll be on the screen. Sojourn, this is by the way God speaking to Isaac. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and I will bless you for to you 
and your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now that's Genesis 26. Doesn't that sound a lot like Genesis 12? It should. It's the exact same promise, just with a little bit different wording, that God gave to Abraham. I'm going to make you a nation. I'm going to give you a land. And I'm not only just going to do this to bless you, I'm blessing you that you might be a blessing. So the promise of a land and a nation did not stop with Abraham. It also extended to Isaac. Also, the promise was extended through Isaac's son, Jacob. Now, we're not going to go over it, but you remember Jacob had two sons, Jacob and, you remember the other one? Esau. But the promise was extended through Jacob, and he is later, his name is changed to Israel. Look in Genesis 28, 13 through 14. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Who's he talking to? He's talking to Jacob. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth. So, doesn't that sound very similar to the promise given to Isaac, to the promise given to Abraham? Why? Because this promise to be a nation, this promise to have a land, is now extending to the next family, the next generation. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Remember, Jacob is going to meet with an angel, and his name is going to be changed to Israel. So the promise extended not just from Abraham and stopping, but from Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. But notice what it says to Jacob, to your offspring. This is why we call them today the children of Israel. Because they are the children of Jacob, whose name was Israel. And the scripture is saying that God is going to give the land to Jacob's descendants. So the children of Israel, like Abraham, were to become a new priesthood in the new Eden. I want you to go back to the idea that I just talked about. Remember, God made the land. He made the temple, so to speak, the dwelling place, so to speak, of Eden on the land. Then he places Adam and Eve that they might serve as priests in his temple on there, but then that place is profaned and they're, they're kicked out of the land, so to speak. Now, God has started over with a new humanity, not in Adam, but in Abraham, this new people creating a new priest, but not just a priest, but a nation of priests. A nation of priests. This is fascinating. Look to Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 through 6. This is right before the Ten Commandments are given. Notice what God says to them. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured 
possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Keep that on the screen. Here's what I want you to see. First of all, what does God say? God says, listen, I have chosen you, but everybody belongs to me. All the earth is mine. We don't have time to go there, but if you were to go back and read Genesis 10 and 11, you would find two things. You would find one thing in Genesis 10 called the table of nations. These are the sons of Noah and his grandsons. And then you would find a story called the Tower of Babel. And those two chapters are written to explain why the world is the way it is. Why are people spread out? Why are there different cultures? Why do these people worship different gods? Why do they speak different languages? It's all because of Babel. It's because of Babel. And it's interesting when it's how this all fits together. This dividing of the earth took place in the days of a man named Pele, or Peleg, which his name means divided, that the earth was divided up. It's not talking about an earthquake. It's talking about being divided up by language. Now, what's interesting is Peleg's family member is a guy by the name of Heber, Heber. And Heber has children and children and children, but Heber is where we get Hebrews. It goes back to Babel. Heber was alive during Babel, and then his children from the Heber man, the Hebrew man, comes the Hebrews, which would be Abraham. So Abraham, the reason I want you to see this is that God, after the flood disperses people all over the world and chooses one family. One family. After he has dispersed the people all over the world, he chooses Abraham. The Abraham story falls right after everybody scattered at Babel. And here's what he is telling the people in Exodus chapter 19. Listen, I scattered everybody, and by the way, Everybody belongs to me, but I have chosen you to do something very special because I'm going to bless the whole world through you. Remember the blessing of Abraham is that in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Here's something that you need to understand when it comes to the election of God, which means the choosing of God. All choices are of God are not done in this way. I'm choosing you and not you because I love you more than I love you. That is not how the Bible presents this. It's rather, I own it all. And all the people of the earth are mine, but I am choosing you and I'm going to bless you so that you might in turn bless them. That's election. Not saying I love you and not them, but I love the world and I'm going to choose to bless you in order that my blessing towards you might go and cover the whole earth. Because this is where it gets so beautiful. You can probably hear John 3.16 in this, that God chose Abraham to be a blessing. And from the loins of Abraham, you're going to have one come Jesus. And Jesus is Abraham's descendant is going to die for what? The Jews? Well, yes, but more than that, for God so loved the 
world. You're blessed to be a blessing. That God's choosing is to be a blessing to all nations. That this is how God has chosen Abraham, and they are to be this new priesthood. Now, look also on that highlighted portion. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. If everyone in Israel is a priest, then who are they serving? Think about it. If everyone in Israel is a priest, then who are they serving? The rest of the world. This picture in the Old Testament was God saying, I'm starting over with Abraham, and I'm going to place my dwelling, my temple, my tabernacle on the on the land in this special place of Israel, in this special family, and this nation is going to serve as priests to me so that the whole world will be blessed because of this nation. And then the rest of the story in the Old Testament is how that was a crash and burn because they did not reflect their God as they should until a perfect Israelite came. But that's the New Testament. We'll come to that later. Principle number three, God's promised land to Abraham and his offspring is an everlasting and irrevocable gift. Here's what I want you to see in the text of scripture. Look with me in Genesis chapter 17, one through eight, it will be on the screen. And when people say, well, wait a second, did God really give it to them forever? I mean, Jesus came, that that stuff doesn't really apply anymore, right? Well, we'll get into more of that next week. But Genesis chapter 17, 1 through 8. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Hear the echo of Eden. Adam walked with God in the garden. Now God is saying to Abram, now that you're in the land, you walk before me as God Almighty. Oh, it's so beautiful how the Bible fits together. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of a multitude of nations and I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into a multitude of I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. I want you to look here on the screen before I read any further. Who's the covenant between? Between me, God, and you, Abraham, and your offspring, Now, what's interesting here is the offspring is singular. It's not plural. And Paul picks up on this in Galatians. We'll talk about that next year. But (laughs) Galatians is coming in January. Stay tuned. But anyway, you and your offspring after you throughout. But notice it says there. So it's singular and plural all together. So rich, not time to talk about it throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. So who's the land being given to? Hold on. The covenant is between who? Abraham, God, his offspring, and their generations for an everlasting covenant. Okay, so we've covered who the promise is for. Let's keep going. To be God to you and your offspring after you, 
And notice it says, and I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an, say it out loud, everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Notice what he says. The gift which God gave to the patriarchs is the land. And God says, I'm giving it to the patriarchs and their offspring after you as an everlasting possession. Does anybody need help on what everlasting means? Forever. So, the land covenant is irrevocable. It is irrevocable. There were many times in the Old Testament Israel lost the right to live in the land because of disobedience. But at no point did they lose the covenant possession of the land. Notice what Paul says in Romans 11 verses 28 through 29. Talking about the Jewish people. This is New Testament theology now. As regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Talking about the nation of Israel, the Jews. But as regards to election, election, what does that mean? God's choosing. They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts, and I just showed you what was the gift, the land. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, listen to you Gentile folks. I know the Jews aren't believing. And I know it's a problem because Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. And this is not adding up because if anybody should be believing, they're believing. But he's saying to you Gentiles, you and me, he's saying, but y'all don't get uppity. Because listen, God made promises to their grandparents that are irrevocable. So, final thing and we're done. God's purpose in promising Abraham a nation and a land was from the beginning about blessing. From the beginning, God's purpose in promising Abraham a nation land was from the beginning about blessing. Never about conquest, never about empire, Never about colonialism, never about democracy, never about uh, modern religion. Nope. The land was connected to the people that the people and the land might be a blessing to the world. This is why God gave it. He said, but okay, thanks, Pastor Matt. So I've been watching CNN this week and Fox and Trump. So how, how do I answer these? I don't really know what to do with this. That's why you got to come back next Sunday. So you come back next Sunday. If, if there is a takeaway for today, the takeaway is this. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. He keeps it to them. And he will keep it for you.
you can take God at his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this privilege we have of learning from your word. Lord, I pray you would allow this text of scripture to marinate in our souls and we would reflect on what we have heard. And Lord, regardless of where we land and what the modern state of Israel is, Lord, we see in your text today, you did all of this for one reason, blessing. So Lord, will you use us as your people today to be a blessing of the promises we've received, a blessing to our neighbors, a blessing to the world, a blessing to those we agree with, a blessing to those we disagree with, that, Lord, the blessing that we've received would go out and bless others. For it's in Christ's name I ask this. Amen and amen.